We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contention. This is the series on the fundamental beliefs of conservative friends, what we are conserving. And today is session number 14. And I was asked last week if I would continue to talk a bit about our peace testimony. So here we are having a second session. I basically said, I think the principal things I wanted to say last week, I will go over some of those again and then add a few more things today. Of course, you can ask questions or make comments at any time. Please just speak up because I may not see your hand or a raised hand or other. Any questions from last week? Okay. Today might be more of a conversation. I never am sure when I get together material how long it will take to go through some of the material. Oftentimes it seems much longer than I expect. Just saying again, conservative friends have been very consistent and faithful to the belief that as true Christians, we are opposed to war and all forms of violence to obtain our desires. And that includes self-defense. As some of you may know, I was surprised the first time I learned of it years and years ago about something called Quaker canon. Have any of you heard that term before? Well, it appears that Quakers had owned several ships that plied the Atlantic Ocean. And of course, there were pirates all around. Quakers could not use violence, but what they did was they had fake cannon on board to scare any potential pirate that might come their way. Those are Quaker cannon. As I said last week, Quakers are designated as one of the peace churches. And it's sad that that name has been given in the last century to a very few churches, the Amish, Mennonites, the Brethren, and a few others, along with Quakers. Uh, what are the other Christian churches if they are not peace churches? And that's a very important question. I mentioned and I read last week a number of quotes from various early Christians of the first 200 years. And it's very clear in reading any of these early Christian writers, mostly in Greek, some in Latin, that all of Christianity was a peace church at that time. Robert Barclay, in his apology, at one point lists about 25 citations. He doesn't give them, he just lists the, uh, where they're located in Latin abbreviations pertaining to the pacifism of early Christianity. And as we all know, there was a major shift in Christianity after the Emperor Constantine made Christianity no longer illegal in the Roman Empire and it eventually became the Church of the Empire. This, I think, was one of the major changes that occurred in what Quakers have called the Long Dark Night of the Apostasy, where gradually, over many centuries, many of the original early beliefs and understandings, principles, doctrines of Christianity gradually changed so that you could barely see what was there in the original centuries. I did read those quotes from early Christians, I also read quotes from the Bible and from some early Quaker writers on war, 
and the use of violence or not to use violence. There are quite a few books on pacifism and the pacifism of early, of original Christianity out there today. You just have to Google early Christian pacifism or something similar, and you'll find quite a few works out there. It's sad, though, that most Christians, I think, are unaware of that pacifism of early Christianity. Probably the great majority know nothing about it, which is sad because that was a time when Christians were illegal. It was illegal to be a Christian. I mean, you could have your head chopped off. You could be burnt at a stake, thrown to a lion. All sorts of things happen, and yet they prospered. If you look at Christianity today, though, and over the centuries, there's such a vast difference when you look at the Crusades and the Inquisition against heretics and all the various religious wars that have gone on since the Reformation between Catholics and Protestants. One particular I'm thinking of right now is how the religious wars were ended in what's now Germany was if the prince in charge of the area was Lutheran, then you living there became a Lutheran. If he was Catholic, you became a Catholic. It had nothing to do with one's own understanding or beliefs, which is a far cry from being converted to God and converted to Christianity. And even in more recent centuries, too, the political wars that have gone on and on and on, you find members of the same religion fighting on opposite sides of the war. You have Catholic and Lutheran Americans fighting Catholic and Lutheran Germans in the First World War and in the Second World War. It appears that for, for these believers, their political allegiance is much more important than their religious understanding and their religious beliefs. And that, unfortunately, is the case in many other areas as well, not just in terms of militarism. I want to repeat and add a few more biblical citations and uh, read a couple more things from Robert Barclay. I think he says it so well in his apology, although many other Quakers have written about the same thing as to our peace testimony. What I'd like to first read is something about the sufferings of these pacifist Quakers. In this particular passage, he talks about Quakers, while worshiping, have suffered in terms of what would happen to them while they are worshiping in silence. And he says here, And we, having, I say, thus oftentimes purchased our liberty to meet by deep sufferings, our opposers have then taken another way by turning in upon us the worst and wickedest people, yea, the very offscourings of men, who by all manner of inhuman, beastly, and brutish behavior have sought to provoke us, weary us, and molest us but in vain. It would be almost incredible to declare and indeed a shame that among men pretending to be Christians, it should be mentioned what things of this kind men's eyes have seen, and I myself with others have shared of in suffering. There they have often beaten us and cast water and dirt upon us. There they have danced, leaped, sung, and spoken all manner of profane and ungodly words offered violence and shameful behavior to grave women and virgins, jeered, mocked, and scoffed, asking us if the Spirit was not yet come, and much more, which were tedious here to relate. In all this while, we have been seriously and silently sitting together and waiting upon the Lord, so that by these things our inward and spiritual fellowship with God and one with another in the pure life of righteousness hath not been hindered. 
This is what we are talking about in terms of non-resistance to evil, patiently suffer it. And another passage, again, this is regarding the innocent sufferings of the Quakers. But of this excellent patience and sufferings, the witnesses of God and scorn called Quakers have given a manifest proof. For so soon as God revealed his truth among them, without regard to any opposition whatsoever or what they might meet with, they went up and down as they were moved of the Lord, preaching and propagating the truth in marketplaces, highways, streets, and public temples. Though daily beaten, whipped, bruised, hailed, and imprisoned, therefore. And when there was any where a church or assembly gathered, they taught them to keep their meetings openly and not to shut the door, nor do it by stealth, that all might know it, and those who would might enter and as hereby all just occasion of fear of plotting against the government was fully removed, so this their courage and faithfulness in not giving over their meeting together, but more especially the presence and glory of God manifested in the meeting being terrible to the consciences of the persecutors, did so weary out the malice of their adversaries that oftentimes they were forced to leave their work undone. For when they came to break up a meeting, they were obliged to take every individual out by force, they not being free to give up their liberty by dissolving at their command. And when they were hailed out, unless they were kept forth by violence, they presently returned peaceably to their place. Yea, when sometimes the magistrates have pulled down their meeting houses, they have met the next day openly upon the rubble and so by innocency kept their possession and ground, being properly their own, and their right to meet and worship God being not forfeited to any. So that when armed men have come to dissolve them, it was impossible for them to do it unless they had killed every one. For they stood so close together that no force could move anyone to stir until violently pulled thence. So that when the malice of their opposers stirred them to take shovels and throw the rubbish upon them, there they stood unmoved, being willing, if the Lord should so permit, to have been there buried alive, witnessing for him. As this patient but yet courageous way of suffering made the persecutors' work very heavy and wearisome unto them, so the courage and patience of the sufferers, using no resistance or bringing any weapons to defend themselves, nor seeking any ways revenge upon such occasions, did secretly smite the hearts of the persecutors and made their chariot wheels go on heavily. Thus, after much and many kinds of sufferings thus patiently borne, which to rehearse would make a volume of itself, which may in due time be published to the nations, for we have them upon record, a kind of negative liberty has been obtained, so that at present, for the most part, we meet together without disturbance from the magistrate. Actually, that book that was just mentioned there did get published as The Sufferings of Quakers by Joseph Bessie, a very large two-volume work that has been reprinted in modern times, too. You can also find that The Sufferings of Quakers. So, any comments at this point? I was just thinking about how George was so aware of the outreach potential of that. There's a point early in the 1660s when I think the imprisoned had just gone over 8,000. Mr. Fox was out there saying, well, let's get more imprisoned because the more go to jail, the more Quakers we get. I've always thought it was pretty wonderful. 
actually there were very similar comments about early Christians as they were led off to be executed, more too would come in their place. And even some of their torturers or those who were harming them in one way sometimes would join them, just seeing how peaceable they were as a people. And that it seemed totally wrong that they should be persecuted and killed in such a way. I have a question or a concern. Quakers seem to me sadly passive in these days. I live in an area where the industry is building weapons of war. And the people who are out protesting at the sub base and the sub manufacturer are the Catholics. And the people who do actions against nuclear bases are the Catholics. And so there's the outward action and also tax resistance. I don't know that we are anything but complicit with the military industrial complex. Please tell me I'm wrong. I have to agree with you, although there are exceptions, but my understanding of conservative friends is they've been much more consistent, much more faithful to the peace testimony than any of the other branches of Quakerism. I did mention last week that book on statements opposing war from various conservative friends that was published originally about 30 years ago or so and has been reprinted. I think, at least myself, and I think perhaps others here or conservatives might also agree with me that it's really because we base our peace testimony very much on the words of Jesus Christ and other citations like Paul and whatever that I will get to in the New Testament, that it is clearly a divine command to love your enemies, to do good to those who persecute you, to pray for those who despitefully abuse you. What part of those commands don't you understand? There are some things that are maybe not clear in the New Testament, but some of these are very clear. And if you read even a bit of the writings of early Christians, it's just very obvious that they were pacifists. It's a struggle, of course, today. I mean, while conservatives are such a tiny number, I can't speak for liberal friends or pastoral friends or evangelical friends, but I think just looking out there, I've seen more anti-war statements by Mennonites who are writing and have been writing in the past few decades. Actually, there's one of the writings here. Let me see if I have it with me. By, I think it's a French name, Orgnu, H-O-R-N-U-S. I read this many years ago. It is not lawful for me to fight early Christian attitudes toward war, violence, and the state by Jean-Michel Ornu, H-O-R-N-U-S. It's still in publication, I believe. It is not lawful for me to fight is from an early Christian, St. Martin of Tours, where he said, I am a soldier of Christ, therefore I cannot fight. It is not lawful for me to fight. That's an interesting comment. I am a soldier of Christ, therefore it is not lawful for me to fight. Go ahead, George, you had a question? Uh, I wanted to, as, as I've listened to Marilyn and as you share, and I also reflect on my own experiences through the years, I've had Amish friends, uh, conservative Mennonite friends, uh, more modern-day Mennonite friends, as I visit with different friends groups. So in that regard, Brethren in Christ, uh, as I recall, so as I've experienced the different peace churches I see a very variety of, of responses. And I mean, you know, one is, you know, I guess it's the tax resistance. Others can be very active, very much in terms of a protest or activism. Some sort of take the position of just non-resistance. 
but not really taking any action or rioting, but just saying non-resistance and non-compliance. In other words, I'm not going to participate. So I think there's the idea of just non-resistance. And then the other thing, I think, in terms of sometimes I, I feel like more within the scholarly community, it try to look at depth, what drives war. So often, I think, it's fought over resources or economics and also, in that regard, I thought, well, maybe one way we can be active, speak out that we need to love others. We shouldn't take life. We shouldn't have war. So speak out. But maybe another way is, is the thought of how can we take away the causes of war? And I think our, our simplicity testimony or maybe lifestyle or things that we can do, the products we buy, the way we live, we can also take away maybe some of the economic or or things that drives a country to go to war. So I think there's maybe several ways to express our peace witness. Then with all that being said, Henry, I, I wanted to, and I, I'm glad you're looking at it from a historical perspective, but in the context of 1600s or that period of friends, how would we vision them to respond today in today's society? How would the anyway, conservative friends best respond today or ways well, they could respond? I'm kind of thinking, uh, rather pay attention to the first 200, first 300 years of Christianity. The United States is in a very similar position that Rome was as being the most powerful military country in the world. And Roman law, everything. I think we have perhaps a bit clearer to see ourselves in that kind of relationship that early Christians had, that we too may have in a somewhat different way in that we're not going to be executed for our faith. But looking at England at that time, you know, you didn't have the English Empire start up quite yet. It's kind of sad that in terms of conscience, looking at, uh, as I was mentioning about uh, the religious wars that followed the Reformation, that it had nothing to do with what one believed as to whether you became or ended up being a Roman Catholic or a Lutheran, which is kind of amazing. So think about that, you know, you, you have no say in the matter, basically. Or if you opposed it, I'm sure there may have been people who did not like that. Maybe they moved or whatever, I don't know. I do want to read a number of verses from the Bible, uh, a couple of them I'll repeat from last time, just to give you the bases for our peace testimony. As I said last week, friends in the 1600s did not just suddenly all become pacifists. It took a while, it took a few decades of that till the 18th century, even though there was that peace declaration of 1660. And I think perhaps even with early Christianity, though we don't know, maybe the same thing was true there in that first century. You had a variety of various types of Christians. It took a while for them to really have that deep understanding of to be a Christian meant to be non-resistant to evil and to not take revenge. Vengeance belongs to God alone. One other thing I should quickly say before I forget, and that is during the Roman Empire, they made no distinction between army forces, military forces, and your everyday police. That didn't come till later. So that you're a young guy of 18 and they come through your village and they just grab you and say, you're going to become one of us or else you became one. But that's where you had to make a choice if you were to actually kill someone to fight and kill or harm as a true Christian, then no, you couldn't do that. But that was a distinction then. Did I mention this last week uh, in the 18th century with the French and Indian War? 
the Quakers in the Pennsylvania legislature and the colony of Pennsylvania all resigned rather than have to force more taxes on the colony to support the war against the French and Indians. That was a very clear statement. Henry, I just wanted to yeah. make one quick comment because when you first started reading about the early Christians, what triggered my mind at first was Daniel, even in the Old Testament, how he would pray with his window open and didn't really worry about things like this. So I guess I would say some of the pacifists was earlier than Christianity. Yes, but that's bringing up a broader subject I don't want to get into tonight. And that is where it's clear that the Lord God told Jews to go and smite the Assyrians or other people too. But that's a different subject. And where friends were aware of that and wrote about that is they were talking about these wars for a true Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ should see these as internal wars within us between good and evil. Clearly with Christ, Christ is not telling you to go out and fight those people or some other, you know, folk or whatever. That's very clear in the writings of earlier friends. I pulled out some of these citations here from Barclay's Apology. I think we'll just go through some of these. Any other questions first? All right, Matthew 5, 44, 43 to 48. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, and I read this last week, I believe, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was probably an oral tradition of the Jews. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, perfect in the older English understanding, being spiritually fully developed as best you can, as your heavenly Father is that complete spirit, that full spirit. We go to Ephesians 6.12. This is where Paul is talking about putting on the armor of God. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You have all these military words here, breastplate, sword, etc., etc., the armor, and yet, what kind of armor are we talking about here? Spiritual inward armor is the armor of a Christian. It's not putting on chain mail, not using metal sword. It's all inward spiritual. Any comment on that? Okay. Next is 2 Corinthians 10.4. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
they're not fleshly, they're not physical, again, real physical weapons, but they have divine power. Again, that inward outward distinction is clear there. If you go to James chapter 4, verse 1, I read this last week, I'll do it again. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. That's a verse that often is quoted by friends in their writings. And then Galatians 5, verse 24 through 26. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Again, that's in line with what I just read from James in terms of wanting those things and willing to fight for them, physical means, those cravings, whatever they may be. I'm going to skip here the Old Testament quotes. The Isaiah and Micah I read last week, I think, regarding beating swords into plowshares. I think you're all familiar with that. That would occur in the future. And then Isaiah 65, 25 is where the uh, wolf and the lamb will lie down together, so forth. If we go to John 18, 36, this is where Jesus is being questioned by Pilate. And Pilate asks him if he is the king of the Jews. And Jesus answers, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Again, I should just mention here that word Jew, as used, and especially in the gospel according to John, has two meanings, and one needs to always recall what meaning is meant there, whether it just means an ethnic Jew, or at this time it also had a negative sense as to referring to those Jewish leaders and followers who were opposed to Jesus, who rejected him as Messiah, and were out to basically persecute Christians among the Jewish leaders. And that's sad because those two get confused in the long dark night of the apostasy so that you have that persecution of Jews, that anti-Semitic history throughout most of Christianity. Okay, we've got about three more here I'd like to go through. Matthew 26, 62, Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And finally, Mark 8.34, which is an important verse that I'm frequently referring to often in many of my talks. He, Jesus, called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If any want to become a follower of mine, let him reject his self, his ego, 
and take up his cross. That is that cross to all these negative emotions, impulses, or whatever that will lead to violence, especially as we're talking about today, and then follow me. It's a precondition. The last thing I want to read, and then we can just discuss this in general, is something I read last week from Robert Barclay's Apology, and I think it's a very powerful statement in terms of comparing what Jesus says in various citations from the New Testament and the practice of war. I read this last week. And truly the words are so clear in themselves that in my judgment they need no illustration to explain their sense. For it is as easy to reconcile the greatest contradictions as these laws of our Lord Jesus Christ with the wicked practices of war, for they are plainly inconsistent. And then he compares them. Whoever can reconcile this, resist not evil, with resist violence by force. Again, give also thy other cheek, with strike again. Also, love thine enemies, with spoil them make a prey of them, pursue them with fire and sword, or pray for those that persecute you and those that calumniate you, with persecute them by fines, imprisonments, and death itself, and not only such as do not persecute you, but who heartily seek and desire your eternal and temporal welfare. Whoever I say can find a means to reconcile these things may be supposed also to have found a way to reconcile God with the devil, Christ with Antichrist, light with darkness, and good with evil. But if this be impossible, as indeed it is, so will also the other be impossible, and men do but deceive themselves and others while they boldly adventure to establish such absurd and impossible things." There are many other verses from the New Testament, too, that, again, just seem to not be focused on by most Christian denominations. And yet, these are very plain, very clear, and I don't see how you can get around them other than just ignoring them. And yet, you have chaplains in the military forces. You have people approving of various military actions taken by our country again and again. And it's a sad situation, but we're talking here about original Christianity and original Quakerism, and I hope this continues to be one of the bases of our conservative friends' principles and beliefs and doctrines. It seems that I've read that what really blew up the unity around this was the Civil War, because people saw it as such a moral choice to fight. You can even go further back to the American Revolution, there were Quakers who were for the breaking away from England. I'm forgetting they had a particular name. Uh, what are they called? The Gay Quakers or something like that? But most Quakers were very much uh, opposed to taking either side. I could read some other things as well from the writings of friends at that time. Some of them were very persecuted. The Quakers on the island of Nantucket in Massachusetts Nantucket was a, a very important big Quaker colony, so to speak, and the American revolutionaries wanted their support in, in various ways, but they refused to support them militarily. There was some very hard times occurred there because of not getting supplies in the winter to the Quaker population. A number of Quakers, I think, also after the war moved to Canada and become part of the basis of uh, Quakerism in Canada. I think David Raymond probably is aware of that more than I am. 
In the Revolutionary War, there was this problem, but at that point, Quakers had already broken into quite a few different variants by 1860. So it was a much messier problem to say who was doing what. Again, in some ways, there were Quakers who were opposed to slavery, but did not want to get politically involved, and others who felt that they should. I'm not an expert on 19th century Quakerism. It's a very complex, messy time in the history books. I'd like to go back to the Bible passages and good old Barclay. I mean, every word he says is golden, but Fox says over and over, not just Fox, but everybody, I mean, even good old John Calvin says, you have to read the Bible in the spirit in which it was given out. Right. And you can read all those Bible quotes day and night, and they're not going to make any difference if a person doesn't have a starting place. When I was in the sixth grade, I picked up in the library, you know, the little short version of Fox's journal. And when I read that passage, well, first there was a thing about him sitting in holler trees reading his Bible and worrying about temptation, and I liked that. But when I read that passage about being lifted up through the flaming sword into the paradise of God, it just went all over me, as they say down here. And mm -hmm. then a few years later, I read that wonderful passage where he and some friends were at a nobleman or some big shot's house, and a servant came at him with a sword. And George looked at the fellow and said, friend, your sword means no more to us for all. And that, I mean, those are still words. That's still reading words. But that's what led me then when, well, I guess it was about 1968, 67 or 68, I mailed my draft cards back. That wasn't motivated by reading the Bible. That was motivated by the fact that I knew when the Spirit was working because I'd had these other experiences. You can't challenge somebody to take words differently than they do until this other thing has happened. And it's yeah. the other thing that makes people act like real Quakers or not. For me, it was reading excerpts from early Christian writings that were just so consistently pacifist. This was before I knew anything about Quakers just knew they existed and they had something to do about being opposed to the Vietnam War at that time. I went to see someone to get information on avoiding the draft. But I grew up with, as a Roman Catholic, with the understanding of the just war of St. Augustine's theory of there are wars that are okay. He was in the late 4th, 5th century, so we're much later. And this is after Christianity has become very different than what it was 200 years earlier. If you recall, in terms of those times, you had to be basically a pacifist. You, didn't, you couldn't choose your wars in terms of a draft board. And I just felt that war was evil and wrong. Luckily, I got out through a medical problem, so that was different. But it was this consistency in reading these early Christian writers and just saying, wow, this has nothing to do with what I've ever been taught. And it's the same today that if those writings were taught to young children in Christian schools, they'd see a lot of hypocrisy not just in terms of pacifism and war, but in other things too. And it was my beginning to read Quaker material that said, aha, this is in the same line of spiritual revelation. They had rediscovered the truth, that spirit of God in those early friends and the spirit of God in me, that of God and, and them answering that of God in me, responding. And there was a connection there that has led me to where I am today.
Yeah, but it has to, to be an aha moment, too, where God reaches you and teaches that truth. And just reading the scriptures or just learning about doesn't protect us from being deceived, necessarily, by other people's ideas. We live in a world where there's a certain kind of understanding of some of these verses that allows us to kind of ignore the absolute clear meaning of them at times. And sometimes even the translations are bad because they're actually stronger than you'd see in the English translation from the Greek. There are a lot of things going on here. But of course, the whole reason for preaching, as early friends understood it, is to bring out that of God in them the Messiah, the anointing, Christ within. Actually, I'll be talking about this next week. That spirit of God, that divine uh, that divinity within us, somehow connecting to us and we connecting to him, helping us to understand what really is the truth here. One of the clearest things about early Quakers is they were constantly pointing out the hypocrisy of the Christian denominations around them the Anglicans and the Presbyterians and the Baptists, and pointing that out just made those people angrier. But they were adamant about, you need to see the truth. And some of them eventually did and became Quakers. Others just got furious. And the same thing happened with Jesus. The Pharisees and others, so many of them were furious at what Jesus was saying, even though what he was saying was the truth. Why they were furious was because they saw themselves as good and doing good work. The Pharisees yeah. were holding up the tradition and they saw themselves as doing some worthwhile work. But that, ironically, is the problem. If you go back to Genesis in the garden where you have the myth with the Satan the serpent, what gets Adam and Eve to forfeit their connection to God is Satan saying, For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Well, the Christians fighting the just war, the Second World War, felt that they were doing good in fighting, and the Germans thought that they were doing good. That was the temptation, to think that we ourselves can know what is good without that connection to God, that inward revelation and command that we must be obedient to, which is what the Quakers discovered. And that's yeah. why Fox could say he came back through the flaming sword into the paradise of God, because he had recovered that relationship with God who then told him what was good. He didn't have to come up with that idea himself or think he was a God who could come up with that idea. He was dependent on God for knowing what was good. And that's a humble state. There are so many people who are talking about self-defense. We are fighting to defend ourselves. But Quakers have traditionally spoken about what Jesus said when he was being arrested, and the disciples had their swords and were ready to defend him. He said, put down your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And even self-defense is not an appropriate response to someone who truly understands the nature of spiritual reality, uh, of all reality, especially spiritual reality, 
therefore, you're to be more Christ-like. And Quakers would refer to that specific passage as saying, uh-huh, no, self-defense, which is, you know, at the same time, people like Isaac Pennington would write that for those who have not come to this spiritual understanding yet, he understands how self-defense would seem appropriate. And of course, we could go back to the Old Testament and see all the wars, as I was saying earlier, the fights that were demanded by God. But we as Christians, as Christ has gone to a higher level of understanding for us, that if we want to be a follower of him, we have to follow the law that is now there, this higher law that is truly more godlike. It's called the living law in the heart, which is Christ. The law of the spirit. Actually, that expression, law of the spirit, you'll find in, in the writings of early Christians a number of times. That's greater than the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, which, of course, at one time was handed down to the Jews through Moses. I'm saying that there's a lot to talk about this, but I just feel it's so sad to see that most Christians aren't even aware of what we're talking about. They have never heard this stuff. I never heard about it when I was a child growing up, only in my 20s. And yet there's a lot of stuff out there, but that's not what most churches are teaching, and they should. But it, it runs contrary to their understandings and their interpretations today, which are wrong. That's why they, you don't get these early Christian writings reprinted and discussed and taught in Bible study, Bible schools for children, whatever, and yet they should be. They should be. But it's a different kind of Christianity. It's the truly Christian theology, as I translated uh, the title of Barclay's Apology. The Latin is truly Christian theology. But that theology says that you're supposed to do what's in you. And until you've accepted your day of visitation and had something happen to you that hits you over the head, you know, like a five-pound piece of firewood or, I don't know, maybe an old pickup truck, it doesn't matter. You can't say somebody should do something until the Lord has changed that person's conscience. The Lord has changed it, but it's 50-50. The person himself has to be open. And if he closes his mind to being open to anything, God is always, Christ is always trying to break into that thick skull. But if that person just <laughs> refuses to get, to open up the door and allow him in, that's where we're stuck. I run the other way. I mean, even this day of visitation is something that can go on for a lifetime. It might be a single moment, but we can't say that. That's why I've just never, and I've done a lot of reading, I can say, I guess, maybe, I don't know, I've done some. <laughs> just reading friends' writings, early friends' writings, faithful friends' writings, there is definitely something more godlike about them than I see in most other Christian writings. Not that there aren't holy people elsewhere. Actually, if they knew what we believe in, I think they would say, yes, we agree with you. But it's just a sad situation that we are in today and have been. What can I say? It's frustrating. Anyway, it's getting somewhat late. Are there any other comments by anyone? Questions? I know this is a lot to think about. When I think about the peace testimony, I also think about not just war and those kinds of things, but Christians kind of using coercive means to try to convert other people or to spread the, their faith. And obviously it doesn't work like that. And seeing how Christ's ministry refutes that approach 
And so I think that also that's also been helpful for me too. I just want to make a point that it's not just against war. It's against using violence as a mean to get things. When I keep hearing this figure that they think that in private hands in the United States, there is possibly 350 million guns in private hands today in the United States. 350 million guns, that's more than the number of people in the United States, which is like 230 million. That is unbelievable. There's no other country like that. But getting back to the point David was making here, it's not just against war, it's about violence in various forms and even resisting evil. Let me just read you a quick verse from the end of Revelation chapter 22. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Don't try to force physically with weapons, with some outward means to, to get your way to, I'm going to make them holy, whether it's the last thing they do. When I think of Columbus and what happened to all the Native American tribe, they were forced to convert to Christianity or else that was it for them. And that happened again and again and again, right from, this, right from Columbus. There's a lot more we can talk about, but it's this peace testimony that's not just about war. It's a much broader understanding of violence and use of violence through physical means to get your way, your cravings, what you want to have done, what your ego says is how the world should run. There you, know. you go. Yeah, the history of the world is the history of egos, they say. Uh, one last thing, I do want to say again, if I, I don't know if I said it in this group, I am thinking in a few weeks of starting a reading and discussion group and reading a book by William Schuen, S-H-E-W-E-N, William Schuen, called The True Christian's Faith and Experience. It's in many modern reprints today. There's a picture of it that Karen Bobonich is showing, The True Christian's Faith and Experience, briefly declared. It clearly shows the differences between traditional, original Quaker beliefs and doctrines and those of other Krishna denominations. It's an excellent book, and I, I want to spend some time on it. I'm thinking maybe doing that on a Sunday, a first day afternoon, or possibly a Friday, sixth day evening or something. But I'll talk more about that in the future. Thanks. All right. Thanks, everyone. Everybody. Bye, Bye Bobby. We are a people that follow after those things that make for peace, love, and unity. It is our desire that others' feet may walk in the same. We do deny and bear our testimony against all strife and wars and contention. This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The words to our music are from Margaret Fowle's letter to the King on Persecution in 1660. The music was composed and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's work can be found at paulettemeyer.com.